All right, welcome back to Pedagogy Non Grata. I am joined today by Jocelyn Seamer. Am I pronouncing that correct, uh, correctly, Jocelyn? You are, absolutely. Um, so yes. I'm going to be interviewing Jocelyn Seamer today on the topic of evidence-based literacy instruction, um, which anyone who's a frequent visitor of this podcast knows is a topic dear to my heart. Um, and she wrote a really phenomenal article recently about the idea, of, is there a right way and a wrong way to teach um, literacy? And I I really liked it, so I, I sent her out a, an invitation to the podcast. So before we get into the, the questions today, um, Jocelyn, would you like to introduce yourself to our audience? Hello, and thank you for having me on the podcast. As you said, my name is Jocelyn, and I help teachers understand how to implement the science of reading in their classroom. And having been a classroom teacher, particularly of small people, um, I aim to cut through the complicated stuff around this so that teachers can just take really effective action when they're teaching. I love that. You just described uh, my also entire mission statement when it comes to teaching other teachers how to teach literacy. Um, so let's, let's dive into the topic. What type of language instruction approaches do you subscribe to and why? Oh, I'm definitely a structured literacy girl. Um, this, of course, the, you know, there's that straw man argument out there that all oh, the phonics people are only about phonics, but we know that oral language is essential, that phonological phonemic awareness, vocabulary, fluency and comprehension sit alongside phonics as those really important pieces of teaching and that focus that we need to have. Um, so I think that we, you know, in the balanced literacy and whole language world, we'll all agree that those things are important, but where we differ is on how we deliver that teaching. So for me, it's structured literacy all the way. What a coincidence. I'm also an advocate of structured <laughs> literacy. So funny that you ended up on my podcast. Um, so my, my next question for you is, how do we know what is the best type of um, approach to this? Like, why do you believe that structured literacy is the superior approach? Well, firstly, I'm going to say it's not my belief. Um, and I, I really get a little perturbed can I say when I hear about I believe um, and that's not about you but I, there was a teacher I heard of who went to a new school and said to something about the science of reading to the principal and the principal said oh, I don't believe in the science of reading and so she's looking for another job but um, basically there is so much research out there the the jury is in and there is no question in my mind that the structured approach is the best one. And it's not just one discipline that we gather that research from. We're looking at neuroscience and cognitive psychology, but we're also looking at things like the reading panels that have been developed by various nations. And as a teacher, we need to understand that research, but also let's look at the evidence from practice. And having taught some of Australia's most vulnerable children, in remote, the remote schools in the Northern Territory, I have seen firsthand the transformative power of this type of teaching because we took kids who were 11 and couldn't read a sentence and then they went off when they were 13 and they could pick up just about anything they wanted and read it. So, yes, it's about the research, but it's also about what we see in front of our eyes. And I couldn't possibly consider ever moving to something that wasn't structured literacy. Yeah, I just want to say I can completely concur with what you're saying. Um, 
you, you sort of looked at it from a different lens than I normally look at it. You know, people who follow this podcast know that we're all about looking at meta-analysis um, data and how it pertains to education. And I, I just want to say that there's been, you know, uh, a great plethora of meta-analysis done on this topic, including the national reading panels that you've discussed, and they all seem to come to the exact same conclusion, as do the secondary meta-analysis too. Um, and I, I will say that on, on the topic of just structured literacy in general, I think there's a lot of focus on phonics within it. I think that's definitely part of why it's so um, successful, but I also feel like part of it is the focus on explicit instruction. Um, you know, balanced literacy and whole language approaches don't really push for explicit instruction. And I, I think that's a big part of why it's so successful. Yeah, I think you're right. The, um, the conversation does often center around phonics. And I have heard it expressed that that's because the language components are often so embedded in our practice that we really don't need to talk too much about those. Um, teachers already have those in their kit bag. But what they don't have, as you said, is that explicit teaching and John Hollingsworth's work and others really show us, Anita Archer is amazing, um, really show us how to implement the phonics in a way that reaches every child. Okay, so uh, let's dive a little more into the nitty-gritty of this. So um, this is a question I've sort of posed to everyone who comes on my podcast who's talking about phonics, and that is, do you prefer a synthetic approach or an analytic approach to phonics instruction? And why? Yeah, there's my understanding is that there's some conjecture about whether synthetic phonics or analytical phonics is the most effective, um, as shown by the research. And please jump in and um, any time. But what I have to say is that English is so orthographically dense, and when we look through the lens of a child who may be vulnerable or who might struggle in some way, I want to be able to take those children on the most direct path to learning. And so for me, it's synthetic phonics. Analytical phonics might be okay for a certain proportion of children and Nancy Young's ladder of reading shows us clearly that there are some kids who are okay with that broad instruction. But I wanna reach all of the children in the class, not just some of them. And my perspective as a school leader shows me that resourcing is finite. So let's just teach everybody as if they potentially may have a difficulty and actually everyone benefits. So it's synthetic phonics pretty clearly in my world. I think that's a great answer. I think just to, to, to give some context on it, for just from what I've seen, um, there is some debate as to, to what is better within the sort of evidence-based um, realm, although it largely most people agree with you that um, synthetic is the best. Um, I look at... Um, Dr. Timothy Shanahan, who did the world's largest meta study on this topic, and he concluded that your your position is correct that synthetic phonics is the best. I have seen some conflicting research on it, so I'm not personally uncomfortable mm -hmm. taking too strong of a stance myself, which mm -hmm. is why I like to actually ask so many people this question, just to try and get other people's perspective on this because it's one that I'm less clear on um, personally. Uh, but I, I also think maybe there might be a time and place for both. It's just sort of the way I'm looking at it. Whereas I would yeah, think I'm, that... I, I'm, sorry. No, I was going to say, I'm the same. And so that's why I'm not taking a, a really hard stance. I think that there is room for analysis when we move beyond that phonological approach to decoding and reading and we start looking at morphology. And because that's a more language-based, meaning-based activity, I think there is definitely room for analysis there. You know, when we're looking at 
stems and roots. Um, that helps us develop meaning. And whenever we look at meaning in conjunction with reading, we're going to build our orthographic mapping. So I think it's knowing what we're doing and why we're doing it and who is best served by what we're doing, but also really asking the question of who is not being served by an approach and taking that seriously and not accepting that there's a proportion of children who will fail to learn to read because I don't accept that at all. So yeah, you really, sort of you sort of read my mind there. You were you just yeah. you know you said what I was about to say. I was just about to say I think sort of later on in the child's development, well, we're still sort of almost mastering decoding, but not quite. It might be a helpful tool to do some analytical phonics. But I think definitely at the start of a child's um, early reading uh, career, we want to focus more on the synthetic because it's the more bare bones structure of the language. But, Absolutely, and I've assessed hundreds of children for reading both their phonics and at text level and the children who find it the hardest to get over the hurdle of really becoming fluent readers are those who are still using an analytical approach to decode so when I will show them a series of graphemes and they're imagining a word in their head and figuring out what the sound is they are not building the orthographic mapping and they're not building fluency so that's a, children will have, sorry. No, I was about to say that's a really interesting perspective, especially with the, your experience on the subject. Hmm. Uh, I just think it goes along with the fact that we've heard so many people um, who are specifically interested in the structured literacy approach for students who have challenges with reading or have been diagnosed with dyslexia say the exact same thing with you. I, I can't say I have the same level of experience that you do with diagnosing uh, or assessing students with reading difficulties. Um, so I think it's really interesting to hear your perspective saying that you've, you found that as a constant trend. Mm, well, as, a career, as the um, assistant principal of a reasonably sized school in the Northern Territory, which had an enormous population of vulnerable children, I personally assessed every child in the school for their reading so that we had that consistency across the school. So I've seen the full range of students um, just in that job, let alone on the other work that I've done. As that's a private tutor and that's a really cool experience in itself i've never heard of um, yeah. um somebody doing every single child in the school how many students are in your school uh we had i've recently finished up in that role but we had um about 250 ish um so you know my my work was as curriculum leader and while the we were introducing a systematic approach we needed that consistency of assessment while I train other people up to support and carry that work on. But there's nothing more telling than actually doing the reading assessments yourself so that you really get the idea of what's happening. Before I was a teacher, I worked as a tutor. I worked, I worked in the school as, uh, as a volunteer and then uh, they employed me to do literacy support and then I became a tutor from there. And when you have a child sitting in front of you and you've told these parents that you're going to get results for that child, you better get results. And the level of personal accountability that comes from that is something that I've always carried through into my classroom teaching. Um, and when you do that, you take the growth very personally. So you learn about the nuance of children's reading behavior and what it means and how to support so that's something that's given me a different perspective. I love everything you just said there. Uh, it really speaks to me. I've just um, I've used RTI a lot um, with structured literacy mm -hmm. to teach language, 
And I, one of the things I've noticed is that RTI just makes you feel very accountable to your students because baked into it is this idea that all your students are capable of success and you're tracking that success. So when a student isn't succeeding, it feels like you are personally responsible for them not succeeding, which I know can be an idea that's unpopular to teachers, actually. But I think that that's part of why the system... And, but I think that's part of why that system makes you more successful. I think it's that personal responsibility for the teacher. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, and the other I, thing about that, I'm oh, sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> you, you, you go. This is your interview. I was going to say, the other thing about RTI, that response to intervention model, is that if you have a large proportion of tier two students, you need to look at your tier one. Mm-hmm. So what we want to aim for and what I teach in the work that I do now with teachers is that you want your T1 and T2 to be really closely aligned, but only if your T1 is a good, strong, evidence-based approach. And when you have that, you're not asking children to be in two different headspaces. Because for our strugglers, they don't have the cognitive load and memory capacity to do that effectively. So that's a whole nother podcast. Uh, um, Absolutely. Um, RTI is something, I think phonics and RTI are probably the two topics I've ended up talking the most about on this podcast, actually. Um, so, and we've already touched on both. Um, I have a, a follow-up question about your, your assessments, sure. just out of curiosity. So I, I've worked one-on-one with uh, a large group of students, but nowhere near to the, the same size of you. And I've noticed once or twice I had students who, when I assessed them for their phonetic knowledge, they, they had their, their synthetic sounds down but they didn't know how to necessarily blend them um, in the sense that mm-hmm. if I showed them the sound or even the, the blend, they could tell me what it's supposed to say or sound like. Um, but when I put the, gave them the word with it in front of them, then they, they really struggled. Um, so in my mind, uh, what they really needed was just more practice, which is, is what we did. But I was wondering how often uh, you, you saw students who fit that sort of profile or versus how often you saw students who really didn't know some of their basic sounds, and that was the reason why they were um, failing at reading or struggling with reading, I sorry. Think there have been, yeah, no, that's right. I think there have been more students who were not blending effectively because they didn't yet have automaticity. And sometimes the benchmark of what we're looking for to say that a student has the sounds, in inverted commas, is not quick enough. And we want their responses to be like lightning. So when teachers are doing assessment, the retrieval of the information when a child looks at the grapheme needs to be effortless because a child who has, for children who have memory challenges, working memory challenges, the micro break that may be imperceptible to us of them having to stop even for a fraction of a second and try and retrieve the information about that graphene is enough to really get away to get in the way of the blending. So by the time they get to the last graphene in the CVC, they've forgotten what the first one was. So it can be around memory. It can be around phonemic processing with that blending and segmenting. So perhaps they just need more practice. But I would say that when a teacher's assessing, if the child is not blending, effectively with the graphene they don't have the graphene you don't move them on uh, that was really fascinating i've never heard of that um point before about the importance of speed and i'm really embarrassed that i might say this word wrong or automaticity is that the how i'm saying yes yeah we, we call it automaticity 
automaticity. I've never used that phrase yeah. before. Oh, All right, I learned well, something new things. today. Okay. Continental language building. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so um, I took us off on a little bit of tangent here, and I do apologize. Um, but no, you, I like you, the <laughs> you deal with the talent tangent very effectively. So my next question for you is. Um, what do you think are the challenges with uh, a balanced literacy approach? And I, I say this because, at least where I am from, I don't think anyone is still promoting a whole language approach. It really now seems to be structured language or balanced literacy. And I'm sad to say that in many ways, balanced literacy is more popular still. However, I think that structured literacy is surging and will, will win in the end. Um, but, what, but I think there's so much of this evidence-based community that wants to come out and say, we can't, we can't be doing balanced literacy anymore. We gotta be moving to structured literacy. Mm. And uh, I'm curious to see is it, why you think perhaps um, structural literacy is better. Mm. So many issues with a balanced literacy approach. Um, I spend quite a lot of time in Facebook groups, particularly aimed at the early years of school. And someone posted just this week, do you like phonics or whole language and why? And that was the question they posted. I cringed as I clicked on the comments on this Facebook group. And the majority of people said both. There's a place. And then I cringed a little more <laughs> and I refrained. No, actually, I didn't refrain. I hopped right in there and disagreed with everybody in a very respectful way. But I think that some of the challenges is that some of the things that, that we do in a whole language approach are actually good to develop oral language and the mistake people have made and I'm not even sure this is a conscious error but the assumption of whole language is that we learn to read as naturally as we learn to speak that reading is an extension of speaking and reading and writing is an, is an extension of speaking and listening and it's not and so the things that we're giving children to do are not fit for purpose. It's not fit for purpose in instruction. So an example is three queuing. Three queuing was originally put together for oral language development and then was extended to reading. So using syntactic and semantic cues in an oral language capacity is a great thing, but it's not good for reading. So it's back to that know why you're doing what you're doing and what the impact is going to be. And that say, the same works for pictures, using the picture cues. Great for meaning, not for decoding in the first place. The results of this for so many children have been disastrous. In Australia, and I think it's similar in the US, I'm not sure of the Canadian numbers, but in Australia, our Australian Bureau of Statistics indicates that 48% of Australians are low-level readers. And that's not okay, and it's also unnecessary. So balanced literacy gives this false sense of we can keep doing what we're doing and we'll just whack on a phonics patch and say we're doing phonics. Yeah. But the, the challenge is that while ever you continue to provide predictable texts that encourage guessing strategies, while ever you continue to expect that children will learn to read words as whole units, as in a sight word program, which the evidence is so abundantly clear that that's not how it works. So I never shy from telling people that, that sight words are not a thing. While ever you're doing that, that 
bottom 50% of your class is going to be disadvantaged. They just are. If you switch to structured teaching, you will actually benefit your entire class because for your more proficient readers or those who are going to come a little bit easier to reading, they develop the meta understandings, they develop the meta language and the metacognition about the reading, which accelerates them. Nobody loses in a structured approach. Now we know that all literacy floats on a sea of oral language, and yes, I've pinched that. Um, it does float on the sea of oral language, and so I have never ever met a, a systematic synthetic phonics person who talks phonics only. That's a straw man argument that we refute as often as humanly possible. Um, and I really could talk about this all day, so I'm going to stop now. Um, but what we don't want to be doing is building poor habits. So those three cueing methods are the habits of poor readers. They're not the habits of strong readers. Just yeah, that's a, that's, that's a really good point. I don't know. I've always thought the three cueing system was a, sort of a hilarious oddity. Um, even when I was first learning about it, it's just that the idea that, you know, teach kids to look at the pictures if they don't know the meaning of a word. I mean, uh, it seems to make more sense just to teach the kid how to read. But also, yeah. I just think, in what world does the kid not always look at the pictures? And I, I've never seen a kid not try and look at the pictures and guess the meaning of a word. Um, that seems like something oh, that's just up. so... Do you? Wow. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If the, if the child has been taught... And still to this day here in Australia, there are teachers actively in their classrooms teaching that that sounding out, the blending the word is the last strategy Resort. they try. Absolutely. And I know that it happens in the US and I'm sure it happens in Canada. And it's not that teachers are not intelligent and it's not that they don't care. Um, but if, a ch if I work with a child and they look, they come to a, a, a block in the decoding and they're looking at the picture, I just cover the picture up because it's the, it's a reflex and we need to help rebuild that child's reading habits. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think, um, well, you're giving me so much I want to comment on. It's, it's hard. Um, I, I think part of the, the issue here is that teachers um, uh, often tend to be the people who learned reading more naturally than others. Um, yeah. And therefore, when they get to become teachers, they think this is um, how everybody learns. And I, I think you often see this like surprise for first-year teachers or second-year teachers, just how different the experience of some of their students are from what they remember as being a student, because they are often people who were near the top of their class, or at least higher-performing students. Yeah, and interestingly, the people who do really understand this point about how ridiculous three queuing is is parents. They get it. And anyone who doesn't live in the education world, whenever I have said, even secondary teachers who, you know, are not taught how to teach kids to read, um, but should be, but that's another, that, again, that's another podcast. Um, they, they say, what do you mean? They're taught to look at the pictures. And I go, yeah, that's what they're taught to do. And they say, but that's silly. That's not reading. I'm like, I know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I think I, I, a lot of the structured literacy movement has been pushed forward by parents of students who struggle to read, not teachers, yes. um, yeah. which is, makes it a really fascinating movement. I, I will say, I don't know about Australia. I'm just out of curiosity. So I'm in Canada. 
And the way we teach um, teachers how to teach is not very much. And we don't really give them this sort of landscape of what is evidence-based. We don't tell them what is best practice. We just sort of teach them all the theories of learning as if they're all equal and tell teachers to go forth and experiment with all of them. And I think teachers just really leave college thinking that all of these methods are evidence-based and that they're not competing ideas. And then teachers really just teach the way they were taught and then sort of like intermittently sparse in ideas that they got from teachers college. There's no real like uniform approach. And I'm, if I'm being honest, I think that was a lot of why I started this podcast is I thought that was a mistake and that we need to start to look for a more systematic way of training teachers. And, yeah. And um, it's why I started my blog as well, because there are so many teachers who want to know more. And in 2020, that's why I started my teach alongs, they're called. It's a course, but it's a teach along. So you learn a little bit and implement a little bit, reflect and then learn a bit more and implement a bit more. Um, because teachers have cognitive load challenges as well. It's a, it's a huge job. Um, For sure it is. But the, we, there was a, a current affairs show here in Australia, it was last year, and they interviewed a, a whole bunch of pre-service teachers as they were coming out of a university lecture. And they asked, well, what's the best way to teach reading? And their response was, well, I don't think we know. Or there's not, not one best way. And these are university lecturers. Yeah. Um, there is absolutely a groundswell of parents demanding action. And there's also a large movement of classroom teachers who are pushing for change. I have never had a school leader contact me and say, I want to implement evidence-based teaching practice and my teachers aren't interested. I've had many, many messages and emails from teachers saying, I want to implement more up-to-date practice and yet my school leaders are actively refusing to let me use decodable texts. They're telling me I'm not allowed to teach structured phonics. They're making me send predictable text home. And I think there's something in that. And I think that it's really disheartening for teachers who want to do an excellent job for children and and get it. They they know why there needs to be change. And I don't know the answer to that, unfortunately. If I did, well, I'd probably have my own podcast. But um, there, there is a definite push. And like you, I'm optimistic about the future. I think that we're, we're moving in the right direction. And so we need to help more and more teachers come on board with that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I do see the, the culture of teaching is nowhere near where I want it to be in the terms of being evidence-based. But I, I do think there is this groundswell that's been started by the structural literacy movement, um, specifically often relating to parents of students diagnosed with dyslexia. Um, mm. But I, I don't know if the same culture really exists yet in math. And I, I really hope that we can start to see that culture existing in other subjects soon too. Um, and I don't think this is the mainstream yet. I think it's just a subculture of teachers and parents right now who have embraced evidence-based teaching. Yeah. But I, I think the fact that that Absolutely. subculture now exists is, is awesome in itself. Absolutely. And it's a start. And I, I think that the answer to the, the maths and the other subject areas is really teaching about the benefits of explicit teaching. The Again, there is evidence to tell us that a discovery or inquiry model of teaching, which is very trendy here in Australia, um, it, it, disad, it exacerbates disadvantage for our vulnerable students. 
it only serves a small proportion. And the more we have people understanding cognitive load theory, the more we have people understanding that good explicit teaching does not result in children sitting passively in rows copying notes from the board, that actually good explicit teaching, children are very active and involved. The more we can build that understanding, the more we'll see that spread of good evidence practice across the curriculum. The other thing that really bothers me when I work with teachers is this culture that exists of I need to teach a unit on history, for example. So I'm going to go to my subscription service who has units already made for me with PowerPoints and I'm just going to teach from that. Teachers don't understand what the curriculum is asking of them and they don't understand how to use a backward design process to help children learn that in an explicit way that supports their cognitive load. So they're reaching for things that actually don't match the curriculum, that actually don't respond to the, the needs of the students, that don't enable them to make adjustments for students with additional needs, that don't respond to their, I call them the, um, the horse race students who are just flying ahead with everything and they're finished in five seconds and get it and what's next. Um, and it's very much a, I don't want to say lazy, but it's passive. It's a passive way of looking at our teaching. Um, and I think that the more we can move away from that, the better we will do for our students in literacy as well as everything else. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with uh, you. I think in general, focusing on a more explicit, a more active model of education. And actually, this isn't my line, actually. My current principal said this to me recently. Um, and I just thought it was such a great way of putting it. She said that teaching needs to be purposeful. We need to be thinking in our heads why we're doing everything we do and teaching with intention. And I, I just love that line. Um, and I think that is the key to being more evidence-based. If we could if we summarize, it, summarize in a, it in a very small way. Hmm. So anyways, uh, I'm going to move on to my next question. And sure. I've seen a little bit of controversy over this, more than I expected. And I'm just going to ask you, what do you think about the explicit instruction of fluency? Oh, the fluency lesson is, I believe, oh, I've used that B word, um, I think is a bit of a myth in reading instruction. And I think that having a fluency lesson, in inverted commas, takes us away from examining what constitutes fluency. So it's not one skill, but it's the convergence of a range of skills and knowledge. So when we think about the simple view of reading, we see that the language and the decoding come together. When those things come together, we have fluency. So we're much better off making sure that students have the basics of decoding to automaticity, both for the phoneme, grapheme, correspondence and the blending. Spending time building vocabulary because we know that if you can't say it, you can't read it and you can't write it. So building vocab, teaching about rich language structures, really helping children understand the role of punctuation, not just in the decoding, but in comprehension as well. Sentence structure and the, the vocabulary is so very important and having worked with so many children who have English as frankly a third or fourth language, it really hits home that if a child doesn't know what the word means, 
they have great difficulty reading it. So the I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here. Um, the when we're being explicit about fluency, there is a place for repeated reading. But it's not just for the aim of getting faster. It's so that children can improve their prosody, so that they can learn to read like a storyteller, and they can build comprehension. But there isn't one thing that you can say, I'm going to teach fluency now. We need to understand the components and make sure that they're all strong. And that's where Scarborough's reading rope comes in. Because as that tells us, if there is one or two strands of that rope that is frayed, the whole reading experience is compromised. I, I really love that answer. Um, it's so well articulated. I've, I've heard some people within the structured literacy um, realm say that they're against fluency instruction. However, if we are looking at the body of evidence, it's, it's incredibly clear that repeated reading in specific is a high yield um, literacy instruction strategy. Hmm. But I think you've done a really good job articulating that it, it's conceptually that the understanding of fluency that's the problem, but there's still a place for repeated reading specifically. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, I'm going to move on to the next one. This is another sort of um, idea that is controversial, I think, within the um, structured literacy community, and that is when and how would you teach reading comprehension? Mm, well, my answer is going to be quite similar <laughs> to the last one. Um, this idea of comprehension and it hurts me to hear teachers saying my school requires me to teach comprehension strategies for three hours a week and I think oh dear you could be spending half an hour teaching a comprehension strategy and two and a half hours building background knowledge mm -hmm. because we know that comprehension is so heavily influenced by vocabulary and background knowledge and we waste so much time working on these strategies now, my understanding of the research around this is that if that a little bit of this instruction is necessary, but yields you the same results as a lot. So you do need to do some, but not nearly as much as people seem to think. And again, those online subscription sites that have all these lessons have lesson upon lesson upon lesson. And there's programs out there that schools are spending a lot of money on yeah. that spends so much time in this area when if we had a more systematic and intentional approach to building knowledge that we would do children a much better service. I, I like your nuanced answer. Um, I have seen some people say we should not teach any comprehension in early grades. I can't say I, I agree with that, but um, I also have seen this, this phenomenon where schools want to focus really heavily on comprehension. I think it comes up because you know, we have the standardized tests come out and the students perform really badly on the comprehension aspect. Mm -hmm. But I think it's because they're reading so slowly because their reading levels are so low yes. that maybe they can decode the words and understand the words, but they um, can't maintain uh, retain the meaning of the, the paragraph or the, the page um, as they read it. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I will say I've taught every grade language trial. Um, um, grade one all the way up to grade 12 and I can tell you that when you get students to grade 12 and you're getting them ready to go to university um, you do need to spend a lot of time on comprehension because a lot of what they'll be studying at university will be comprehension but when you have a grade one student um, I think the idea of spending a lot of time on comprehension 
with students who are really just learning the very basics of reading, it seems like, from my perspective, uh, a very large waste of time. Because if oh, yeah. agreed, yeah. So yeah. in some of the training that I do, um, I present a graphic that I've made that shows the proportion of phonics and decoding that you use at different stages of the reading process or the reading acquisition process. And I call it that rather than grade because mm. otherwise we're assuming that a child in year three or four is where they need to be. So very often a teacher will say, I have this student in year four and they're just not reading and how do I help them learn the year four content? And I say, well, that's an interesting question because what you actually need to do is go back and help them learn the year one content if that's where they're up to. Um, so absolutely agree with you that the major focus when we're novice and early readers is on phonics and decoding, and it's entirely appropriate for that grade 11 and 12 to be spending a lot of time analysing text and, and working on the comprehension because the needs of different learners at different stages are different. And again, I keep coming back to this fit-for-purpose instruction. And as you said, your principal said, know why you're doing what you're doing and be intentional about it. And that makes all the difference. I love hearing nuanced answers. <laughs> um, <laughs> so my next question is this, and this is an idea near and dear to my heart because I find that a lot of um, people are against the teaching of spelling now. Um, so personally, I, I teach, I do teach spelling when I teach younger students. Um, and I'm curious what your, your position is on the topic of teaching spelling. Yeah, so my experience has been that in the first three years of school, you don't need a separate spelling program because the teaching of phonics should include segmenting as well. So you should be teaching um, grapheme, reading and retrieval, and you should be teaching encoding and decoding together. And that makes the learning stronger by far and contributes to that orthographic mapping development. So what you may need is some irregular high-frequency word teaching, which is not a sight word program, mm -hmm. um, because to support writing, the words that children want to write and they want to write frequently are going to come up as those irregular high-frequency words. But I wouldn't, I'm not an advocate for a separate spelling program in the first three years of school. However, beyond that, we need to shift our focus from a phonological one and in phoneme graphene correspondence to morphology because that's, the morphology is an enormous part of our language and so if we don't teach that explicitly, we're robbing students of half the picture and we're assuming that they can put it together themselves. I recall very clearly being at school and getting spelling lists, and all of the word ended. All the words ended in T I O N in shun, mm -hmm. and the teacher saying, "All oh, those letters are shun. Go practice your spelling words, and do look, say, cover, write, check, and we'll have a test on Friday." That is not morphology teaching. So um, that's where some of that analytical work can come in, but being intentional about providing opportunities for children to understand how words work is really important for spelling. So that's how I would teach spelling in the upper primary. If you had um, tier two and three vocabulary, 
that you wanted children to be able to use in their reading and writing, understand and use in their writing, you may have some spelling around that. It just depends what you're doing. But we want to be careful not to take children into the situation where they have all these compartmentalised areas they have to learn. There needs to be clear line of sight between what we're learning in one area and how that helps us apply our skill and knowledge throughout our learning in the curriculum. So that's, those are all really good points. I especially like your point about focusing on the irregularly spelled words. Um, it might be a great way of using spelling. Um, so my next question for you is about phonemic awareness. This isn't something I personally have a lot of experience with, um, but I know recently I've had two very qualified guests on my podcast, I will say, and I won't name them, but who disagree with each other on this and just the idea of sort of teaching phonemic awareness before you teach um, actual phonics itself. And I, I'm just curious if you have an opinion on this, uh, this subject at all. Funnily enough, I do. Um, <laughs> so having been predominantly an early years teacher, although I have taught as a teaching principal, I taught all the way to year six. Um, but I spent a lot of time in the early years. And when I taught four-year-olds, half of those four-year-olds went into the formal years of schooling being able to decode CVCs. And the way that we were able to do that is that we did teach, we started off teaching phonological and phonemic skills to the students. But I think there's a difference in the way that you teach phonological, the early phonological skills, such as syllabification, identification of first and final phonemes, rhyming. That stuff can be done in a very um, informal way. And I have... My understanding from the research is that actually there is not a lot of benefit to spending copious amounts of time on that in order to get children reading. However, it's a bit like general health, I guess. You do a little bit every day in some fun ways and, you know, you've got, we have strong phonological skills. I don't think there's anything wrong with teaching phonemic skills, the early phonemic skills, before children learn graphemes. But it is more effective to do so at the same time. So before children have learnt graphemes, you might say, boys and girls, I would like you to come and sit on the mm at. And your children who are ready for that and can process it will go, oh, that's the mat. It's even better, though, if you say to the children, I'd like you to come and sit on the mm at and have them repeat the sounds after you, then they can put it together. It just gives them a foundation. Mm -hmm. But it's not necessary, but I definitely think that teaching with the graphemes is more effective. I, I tend to agree with you, but I don't think I've spent enough time looking at this topic to have a really a well-formed opinion. I just wanted to get That's your position on it. So right. the, la the last thing I'm going to say is, why does it matter that teachers use an evidence-based approach? Oh, well, um, as I've said, 48% of Australia and other English-speaking countries, it's funny that the proportions are similar, are not reading at a level that they can read an email, they can progress beyond the bottom rung of their chosen profession. They can't read the warnings that come in their children's medicine packets and they can't read anything beyond a basic newspaper. There's a reason that an average newspaper is pitched at a level for a 10-year-old. 
and it shouldn't be that way. We know that people who struggle with reading perform worse on every measurable life outcome. They're more likely to live in poverty, be victims of violence, be incarcerated, have ill health, all of it. So that's my bigger why. When I have, I've had the experience of having fathers and grandfathers who themselves struggle with literacy. And I remember one dad in particular crying in the classroom in a parent-teacher interview meeting. And he said, I don't want him to be like me because I know that I'm smarter than the job I'm doing, but I can't write the emails I have to to go for the next job up. And it doesn't have to be that way. So the structured approach is absolutely crucial for people who are not necessarily, who don't necessarily have the brain physiology, that's probably not the right word, but to just make it magically happen. And we need to serve all of our students, not just some, not just half. This idea that if we just read enough books to children, they'll learn to read, that's a good thing to do and we, we should be doing that. But that myth in itself lets education off the hook. And we don't we can't be off the hook. We've talked about accountability. We are accountable. And it's not about teacher bashing or blaming. I, when I talk about education, I mean as a profession. And that's not just the teachers. That's made up of leaders. And unfortunately, education is so politicised that that can very often get in the way. And that's a very roundabout way of saying that we need to give children the most direct path to reading. We need to give our teachers the tools that equip them to do the best job for kids. There's a reason we hemorrhage teachers from our profession and that's because they feel dissatisfied and they feel dissatisfied because they're not able to get results or they're hampered in their efforts. So at the end of the day, it's about kids and it's about equity and it's about social justice for me and things don't have to be the way they are. Well, I think that was a very well articulated answer. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I really enjoyed our, our conversation. Um, where can folks find out more about you? Oh, yes. Um, so my website is jocelynseemaeducation.com. And as I mentioned earlier, I run teach-along courses. So they're online. Um, they are super practical. So there is knowledge stuff there. That you knowledge stuff, isn't that wonderful? Um, there is a, a lot of uh, foundational information there, but I'm focused on giving teachers strategies that they can look at and say, oh, I can do that, and then walk away and do so. So, jocelynseemaeducation.com. I love that. All right. That's it for now, folks.